Welcome home. You're listening to Princeton Real Estate Podcast, and I'm your host, Laura Huntsman. And today we are discussing appraisals, and specifically residential appraisals. And I am lucky enough to have as my guest, Beth Ogilvie of Ogilvie Appraisals in Princeton. Beth has been appraising properties for over 30 years, and I am lucky enough to have worked with her and feel she is one of the best in the business. So Beth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, appraisals are a mystery to most. And so I'd like to try and demystify some of that that mystery and and really help people understand the appraisal process and what appraisals accomplish. Uh, let's start with a very elementary question, which is, what is an appraisal? An appraisal is an opinion of value that can be backed up by data of the current market value of a property. Um, we sometimes have to do retrospective opinions appraisals, but that basically just sets the clock back and we look at the market for the effective date of that appraisal. But we basically are out there looking at what a willing buyer and seller would pay and sell for a property in the market. Right, right. Now, how does an appraisal, a bona fide appraisal, differ from what a realtor will give a seller, for example, when they're doing a market analysis? I can speak to the appraisal. Uh, we are bound by USPAP, Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice. Uh, we have guidelines that we have to follow. We have to be able to defend our appraisal report with hard data. We, unless we're doing a relocation report, we pretty much so have to look at historical data and we look at current data of what's on the market, but we're not projecting out. So right. we can't be um, too aggressive unless we can support the value with data. Right. And I've gotten calls where uh, people have said to me, can you come do an appraisal on my house? And I say, I am not a licensed appraiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a realtor who can give you a market analysis, and there are certain things within that market analysis that I do that is what is also part of your appraisals. But I am not a licensed appraiser. I do not go to the same uh, in-depth extent that you do when appraising a property. And I'm not appraising a property. I'm analyzing a property. Mm. Let's talk about, for a moment, how appraisals have evolved over the past 15 or 20 years. You've been doing this for 30 years. I've been in real estate for 21. And appraisals have changed greatly, and they also change with market shifts. Yeah, it's... it. it just like you experience it with the real estate market, it's a pretty fluid situation. Um, when actually, when I started back in the old days, there wasn't even licensing there. Um, now we do have licensing, fortunately. It really holds the appraisers accountable. Um, we 
used to have a lot more um, leeway in terms of completing the appraisal reports. Now we're held to higher standards, which I think is actually a good thing. Um, and it is very challenging to appraise in a very aggressive market, which is what we're in right now. Right, which is one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is, how are you able to appraise properties that are selling often significantly higher than their list price? And how does that affect your appraisal ability with the lenders in the past six months to the present day and going forward? Yeah, so it it is challenging. And if I could back up a little bit, um, when we had the whole um, crash of the market in 2007, 2008, we had the um, Dodd's Frank bill came in and that really restricted the appraiser's ability to communicate directly with the lender. So now when we do Fannie and Freddie loans, we cannot speak with the lender directly, which has its pros and cons. Some people did take advantage of that, which is the reason why it all came into play. But it also takes out or it adds an element of an uncertainty in terms of what a lender is is really looking for in an appraisal or a, a special um, property or, or, you know, what what their criteria are. So it takes that out of it, and which is um, is a little bit to our disadvantage because we just basically put our best foot forward and then a lot of times the lender will come back to us. So here we are fast forward in a very aggressive market and again for Fannie and Freddie loans we cannot talk directly to the lender. Um, but what we can do and what I think is very important is the appraiser has to know the market they're appraising in. And that will allow them to dig deeper into what's going on in the market. They probably have more knowledge as to private sales, which are becoming more abundant now. And they really can play a big factor in appraising difficult properties. And that has, I'm sorry to cut you off, Mm -hmm. that has been an issue with um, home purchases that the appraisal, the appraiser who shows up doesn't know anything about the local market and is from far away. And that becomes a huge issue uh, when the final appraisal comes in. Has that gotten better? Are, Are local appraisals, local appraisers actually sticking local or or are people still being sent an hour away? Unfortunately, you're still having appraisers being sent far away. What happened with the Dodds-Frank bill was that they implemented a, um, AMC, appraisal management companies. And so all appraisal services had to go through the AMC. And then you had appraisers coming from all over the area um, just to kind of get their foot in the door to appraise. We're seeing now a lot of lenders are actually kind of, they have their own appraisal um, panel um, organizations that they deal with. So um, they're kind of 
like appraisal order companies. So they will place an order with that company. That company manages the order. They don't underwrite it or anything like that. But then the lender can restrict the appraisers who are on that roster and also dictate that they have to be within a certain distance from a property, which I think really does help. Um, And appraisers prefer working with those kind of organizations. So like with anything, you know, you have the pendulum starting to swing back a little bit. I personally only do three counties. I will not go outside of those three counties because I don't know those areas. Right. And I, I just really stick in, you know, within those three counties where I do know that a lot of times there still are appraisers coming from outside the area. And that's where I think it's important for realtors. They may have to do a little bit more than they're used to. And I've always been a fan of realtors coming, meeting the appraiser at this uh, property, which is probably the only time that they're going to be able to have communication with the appraiser some appraisers are very scared that they don't want to have future conversations because they don't want to feel like they're being influenced because we do have to sign something saying that we are have not been influenced. And so other than scheduling the appraisal, that's really the only other time you can meet with the appraiser. I've always been a fan of them giving the appraiser an envelope with all the data that they know of, sales, pending sales, maybe um, private sales. Yep. Mark up the MLS, say, you know, well, there was a high tension tower behind that property, so forth and so on. Clear a copy of the contract, and then the appraiser can just take a look at it in their own time and not feel like they've been influenced. I think that's really the best shot for the realtors to address the situation with appraisers coming from outside of the area. I, I agree. And, and I found that that most often they do take the envelope, and they do hopefully look at it and utilize that information. Um, but we're, it sounds like we're still at the sort of crapshoot of whomever we're assigned as an appraiser. It's not like the lender could request you, for example. Right, right, which, again... It, it's a good thing to a certain extent because that really got um, taken advantage of. And right. that's where we ended up in a lot of, we had a lot of problems with values and people flipping and so forth and so on. So I can understand why it's happening. It's something we just need to deal with. But again, moving away from appraisal management companies, I think is helping a little bit. And also right. you, you, you also have private lenders who, who can order directly from the appraisers. Right, right. Now, back to that COVID question and how the market has been such a hot market in this past year and continues to be. What are you able to do and what are you finding when you are appraising a property for a lender and the price, the sales price is significantly higher than the list price? How, how does that work now? It's tricky. Um, so there are a couple scenarios. One is that the buyer has waived the appraisal contingency um, and they're willing to bring additional cash to a deal. 
Another is if we can get data on pending sales, that can be really helpful. And I know that's tricky because that, that information really isn't available. Right. And, and realtors uh, are, are, are concerned about giving out the sales price until it closes. And I totally understand. Yeah. But if an appraiser, so we have to provide at least one listing or pending sale in addition to three closed sales. So if we, and we also have to do um, a, a market analysis. And in doing that market analysis, we look at three periods of time, past three months, four to six months, and then seven to 12 months in the past year. And we look at the close sales of comparable properties, the listing prices of the comparable properties, the days on market, we can look at the market absorption rate. And if you can see a trend there of the days on market going down, the sale to list price being increasing usually over 100%. So you can see the trajectory of the market really appreciating. And then if you have a pending sale and you, you if it went under contract in like three days or something, right. um, and maybe you have a relationship with the realtor and you can say, hey, were there multiple offers on that? Right. Um, that information can be very significant and very helpful for the appraiser to maybe push the, the value up a little bit more than they typically would. Um, I had one a couple weeks ago. It was a townhouse, and it it sold way above list price. And the realtor actually gave me an Excel with I don't know like eleven or twelve offers on the property. What the offer price was, what the conditions were, i.e., if they were going to waive the appraisal, um, what their mortgage amount was when they were were ready to close. I, I just I I copied and pasted that into the report. Because I've done that as well, and I always yeah. wondered if it made a difference, but it sounds like it does. It, it, for me, it does. It really helps um, show that there is a demand. And I think that if you have a sale, that information, I'm not sure, maybe you can correct me, I don't think that information should be confidential if you're not giving out any names or anything. You mean if, if it hasn't closed? If it's the subject property... And right. say it's your listing, you're meeting me at the property and you can show me, hey, here were five offers and these were right. what the offers were. Yes. And actually, I just whited out the names. Yeah. Yeah. It's not imperative that it, I, I couldn't give you confidential information, sure. but, it's, it, but it's not confidential to give you as long as the names are removed and the address is removed. Mm -hmm. uh, just knowing that those offers came in and at what price and what terms uh, that's not confidential. Right. So that information is just really, really helpful. And it helps us to prove our case because that's basically what we're doing on the appraisal is just, you know, showing that, yeah, that this property is worth X amount. Um, and this is where the market is going. So any that's, of that is that's, helpful. That's that's very useful to know. And and definitely is better than it was 10 years ago mm -hmm. when appraisers didn't even want realtors to speak to them. So it's, yeah. it's the, as you said, the pendulum has swung back and it's now more reasonable. And it, it, it's also more helpful to get an accurate app appraisal, which is good. Um, 
in terms of when you are doing an appraisal, uh, what people really would love to know is what are the main things you focus on? Is it square footage? Is it lot size? Is it age, location? What, what, are, the, what are the main things that, that put the value on the property in your appraisal? I like to just go back to, you know, what an appraisal is. It's, okay. you know, the value of a willing buyer and a willing seller. So I'm looking at what a willing buyer and a willing seller would be looking at. Right, um, right. And those are, those are really the key elements of it. Now, we do have to put it in a report. So we are looking at, um, you know, the hot, hot issues are, you know, kitchens, bathrooms, finished basements. Um, and then you do have lot sizes, which we are, we always look at. Um, with, but there's sort of a there's a sort of a diminishing return with lot size, correct? Exactly. So you have to really you have to know the zoning. So if you have um, if you have a half acre lot and zoning is half acre, right? Um, and then if you have a half acre lot and zoning is a quarter acre, then that additional quarter of a, uh, an acre is a lot more valuable right. than it would be if you had half acre zoning and you had three quarters of an acre. That additional quarter of an acre isn't as valuable. Right. So you have to really put it in perspective. And then if some of it's in a flood zone and right. then, um, you know, all those all those kind of factors come into play. Square footage is an interesting thing to look at. And that also has kind of diminishing returns. Um, you know, you have a 7,000 square foot house versus a 6,000 square foot house. Right. That, you know, really speaks to the layout of the property more than the square footage of it in okay. my mind. But then you have properties um, maybe in more dense areas and you have the, the value per square foot is a lot higher given, you know, maybe if you're right in your town or something like that. And in addition to that, the value in my mind of a finished basement percentage wise in relationship to the overall value is actually higher too. Right. Than right. if you're kind of way, you know, a little bit further outside of town. So again, that really speaks to getting to really knowing the area and knowing the market trends. Is there a difference in value between a colonial versus a ranch versus a split level, for example? Could be in some markets. Yes. Um, well, you know, typically it costs more to per square foot to build a ranch because, first of all, you need more ground to do that. Um, and then if you get in areas where there's aging in place, people prefer the ranchers. Right. Um, there used to be uh, a big difference in areas with uh, split levels, by levels compared to colonials. Right. There was more demand for the colonial. But nowadays, first of all, the, this they really expanded a lot of split levels and by levels. Uh, they're not your traditional 1960, 1970 split levels and by levels. And in addition to that, the value of ground has gone up so much 
and the split levels and by levels can accommodate so much more square footage. And right. I think people are appreciating that more. When we get to country properties with septic systems versus sewer, how does that have an impact on the appraised value? It it has it it has an effect. Um, yeah. You know, years ago, there was a whole moratorium in Hopewell for building properties because of the septic moratorium. So, you know, I think that speaks to what, how it was affecting the market. Right. A lot of buyers are coming to the area from areas where they did not have, where they had public water and public sewer and septic and well could be foreign to them and they don't want to have that hassle. Right. And that responsibility. Um, Particularly if it's an older septic that hasn't been replaced. For sure. So they, I always adjust for well and septic versus public water and sewer. Mm -hmm. Generally, public water and sewer are not going to be a problem to a homeowner as much as a well, well and septics definitely are their responsibilities. Right, right, right. Now, pools have a tendency to come in and out of fashion. Um, it, from my perspective, they're back in and have been back in for a few years now, but particularly with COVID, they are desirable. Uh, are they that way regarding appraisals? In my mind, without a doubt, um, again, you have to know the market, um, right. and they have the demand and value of pools basically pivoted as of last March 2020 when COVID started. And people's um, community pools closed, you know, gyms closed, um, there was recreating in place, and people weren't traveling. And the pools really increased in value. Um, I think I, I shared before with others that uh, in Montgomery last year, the zoning officer said they had a record number of permits for pools. And this is after, you know, like five years ago, 10 years ago, people would buy properties and fill in the pools. Right. They didn't, they didn't want that hassle. Um, I think, though, that you also have to be careful in terms of how a pool is positioned in a property if a pool takes up the whole backyard or is up against the house right yeah um that you got the safety issue and you also have the fact that it's taking place of just nice outdoor recreation right um and i'm talking about in ground pools not above ground pools yes. which which are considered non-realty items any difference between a saltwater versus chlorine pool in terms of value? You know, I haven't seen it in, there's not enough data to show that. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if moving forward there is going to be. Um, there's, it's just hard to tease that out from an overall value of a property right now. Uh, what about geothermal heating and solar panels and new alternative energy sources? Is that making any kind of difference in value? 
it's a nut that's starting to crack open. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> so, um, definitely geothermal is becoming a real big thing here. And I think that buyers are willing to pay more for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm finding I can make some adjustment for it. I can also make adjustments for uh, house generators, which, you know, 10 years ago weren't even on Nobody the radar. Nobody had them. No. Nobody had them. But now we can make adjustments for them. Solar, well, and um, solar panels we're not quite there yet. Okay. Um, first of all, you have a couple of generations of solar panels. Some of the early ones had, you know, did some damage to roofs and so forth. So that was kind of offset any advantage they had. Now they're, they're, you know, they're becoming improved. We, if we put a value on anything on the appraisal, we basically have to provide at least one other comp that has that particular amenity. And we have to show that the market is going to value that kind of amenity. So first of all, we'd have to find another comp that has a solar panel. and Which isn't in, easy. Which isn't always easy. And then you also have to find out, are the panels leased? Do the mm-hmm. people own the panels? How were they installed? How old are the panels? And what is the, um, the, the benefit of the solar panels? I do think we are definitely going in that direction. And I think one thing that would be very helpful as an appraiser is if the realtors could list that information in the multiple listing service. So we can see, you know, how, what is the cost benefit? Right. Uh, the savings. Um, Otto, you know, Jeff Otto, who does a lot right. of market analysis, he uh, basically says it's, um, what does he say? You multiply monthly savings by 80. And he says that that's the added value of solar panels. I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying that in order for me to make that kind of adjustment on a report, I'm going to need to have another, at least another comp. That, that shows that. Shows yes. that and can support the fact that the market um, does recognize the, the savings of the solar panels. Now, I know when some appraisals come back, people are horrified that they put hundreds of thousands of dollars into amazing landscaping mm-hmm. and the value of that landscaping from an appraisal standpoint is low or sometimes even nil. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk about both landscaping and hardscaping like patios? Yeah, so the hardscaping like patios and then you have those wonderful outdoor kitchens and mm-hmm. so forth, just like pools, those are um, more valuable now than they were pre-COVID. A lot more people are spending time outside and appreciating those. Landscaping is a definite gray area. Landscaping is beautiful. It can attract people to homes, to, to buying a home. It could be, um, you know, help listing agents sell a property because of, you know, the curb appeal and everything. But they requ- landscaping requires so much maintenance mm-hmm. and cost. 
Um, there was a house that um, I did a couple years ago and had gorgeous landscaping. This guy had a full-time landscaper. Right. You know, right. people aren't always willing to do that. Um, and then you have droughts and then you have storms. Um, and so the, the trees are a funny thing because um, people say, oh, I just added five trees and that right. adds value where you go to the next property. I just took down five, just trees. Took down five trees. That should add value. <laughs> so, you know, that yes. kind of speaks to where that is. Now, mm-hmm. if you're going to new construction and you're you're talking about a property that has no landscaping, is just, you know, soil, then yes, you know, uh, sod and so forth can can add some value, or I should say, not having it kind of detracts from the value is really the way it should be. Right. But um, yeah, it just it's just because of the amount of work it takes to maintain the landscaping, it's very difficult to to give it a lot of value. Right, and privacy landscaping can be very helpful. Sure. But uh, but you're right. If they are intricate gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're beautiful to look at, and they certainly do often help sell the property. But mm-hmm. uh, in the reverse, I've also had clients say, I could never keep it looking like this. Right. So it's it's more than I can handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, you're talking about you got to do it every year. Right. Right. So you're right. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I do remember a house where a full-time landscaper would come down from New York and tend it. Oh really? And, yes, and uh, and that wasn't going to continue under new clients. So mm-hmm. you're right; it 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 can be a, a maintenance issue. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that that buyers and sellers assume is going to be of great value that they're wrong about that really isn't? of great value, anything that comes to mind right away. I know landscaping we just mentioned, but uh, anything else that that everyone thinks is, oh, this is really amazing and doesn't necessarily bring value to a property? Um, I guess if you look at one thing that might come to mind is historical properties. Um, if there is historical significance to a property, if the property was built by a well-known or designed by a well-known architect, right? Um, it's that's great, but it, we again have to look at the general market and a house designed by a certain architect. It, it's hard to put a market value, a value on that, right. yeah. Yeah, so that would be one instance. And then the old homes, which I love old homes. but And we um, have a lot of them around here. We do have a lot of them around here. A lot of them have a lot of problems. They do. <laughs> I live in one. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So, um, yeah, it's, it's hard it's to It's constant stewardship, yes. It is, and a lot of them have... You know, if you have a dirt basement, lenders don't like dirt basements. Um, Lenders don't like it when you have a semi-detached house and the sewer line is in your adjacent property. Oh, no. (laughs) Which which you don't own. (laughs) Um, So those those kind of things can, 
Yeah, they're I think they're eye openers for, for buyers and sellers because right. we just we again, you know, lenders they don't want something way out of the box. They want everything right. in the box, in the box. When they're gonna when they're gonna lend right. on a property. Right. It's much easier to to look at condos or townhouses or newer construction than to look at what we have a lot of here in the greater Princeton area, which are older homes, summer right. historic homes. Are there are there different tiers of age that we're talking about? Are there different eras that as it goes further back in age, there are requirements or things that are more odd um, or is just anything o- over 50 years old all the same? Ooh, you're hitting close to my age there. <laughs> it's, it's a touchy situation, but... Um, <laughs> well, but, I'm uh, older than I'm you. Old, no, it's really hard to generalize that because so many okay. homes have been renovated and they've True. been gorgeously renovated and they blended the old with the new. Right. Um, so no, there is no, there is no cutoff or, or break point that I know of. It's okay. just basically the effective age of the property is really what's important. Got it. I mean, yeah. One condition, condition mm-hmm. is, is, is such a general term. And you touched on that earlier. Um, when you're looking at condition of a house, whether it's an older house that's been renovated mm-hmm. or whether it's newer construction or even, or any, or a house that's 50 years old that's been renovated, not even mm-hmm. a histor- an historic home. Uh, in terms of condition, what are you looking at specifically to determine that condition? Well, first you have the cosmetics. Um, just if it's surface stuff, if it's you know, painting, refinishing walls, new carpeting, that kind of stuff. And then you can get into um, uh, crumbling um, plaster, which right. is, uh, or, you know, um, outside stone work that's missing stone, um, gutters that aren't there, uh, paneling or um, siding that's, you know, a lot of this vinyl siding, it just kind of melts because it's on a, a sunny side that require more than just cosmetic updating. So the cosmetic would be reflected in the condition and you would elevate it if there are more significant kind of repairs that need to be made to the property. Um, right. And then there are those more extreme repairs that need to be made in order to be able to live in the property. Now, if the kitchen had been totally redone 15 years ago, does that count mm-hmm. as a renovated condition or is it too too old? It's, I would just consider it as a modern kitchen. Okay. Um, I, it, it's interesting you bring that up because I had a conversation with um, an underwriter who I, I was able to speak with, surprisingly. Um, and she was questioning, I had an overall condition of a property and then it was basically average condition. And then it had a new kitchen and new bathrooms. And she said, you know, that should be reflected in the condition. And I said, well, not really, because the rest of the property was an average condition. And right. the kitchen and baths were, were new, and I needed to recognize that. I usually tease out kitchen and bathrooms and give them their own line item. Because okay. they're not always consistent with the overall condition of the property. Correct. Is there some 
Is there some age at which, or if they're five years old, do they still count as renovated? I would, again, it depends on the market. It depends on what my okay. comps are. I would say updated. Right. Um, updated until yeah. it, if it were done in the last two or three, it would be right. But again, probably I'll, new and also or depends, newer. Right. Yeah. It also depends on the. Um, if you have a house full of people, I mean, uh, and they're and they're beating <laughs> up on the right. Yeah. yeah. So it's it, yeah. It, it's it's so hard just to make hard rules about appraising. Just as you experience with selling properties, it's so true. It's so true. A lot there is a subjectivity to it, mm-hmm. and and that we have to take that into account. Mm-hmm. What about things like a new roof or new new heating and cooling? Those are general maintenance. Okay. I mean, yeah. So again, you're getting. So that doesn't. Yeah, it, that's supposed to be done anyway. Uh, yeah. So it, it's kind of like if you if you have a roof that's leaking, that's going to work against you. Yeah. But there's an expected norm, and the expected norm is you have a roof that's not leaking. Your mechanicals are working. You know your HVAC, your hot water heater. Um, there's that's kind of like the norm. Right. Right. No. Now, sorry to keep barraging you with specifics, <sighs> but these are questions I get asked all the time. In terms of a house that has a basement, an unfinished basement, versus a crawl space, versus is built on a slab, how does that differ in value other than the difference in square footage of having that basement? You Again, you have to look at your market. Because there are some markets where um, it's very common just to have a, a slab. Like a lot of these um, 55 and older communities, it's very common to have a slab. And so having a, a basement in those communities it, is not really the norm. So it's, it, it's hard to really value that. Now, if you're in areas like in, in Princeton, um a basement is, I think, in general, a big plus. If I could just qualify that it has to be a basement that is at least six and a half, seven feet high, that would then allow you to finish it and put a, you know, kind of a, a ceiling in it. Right, um, as opposed to just access, an access basement. Right, right. And also, you need to have an interior entrance to the basement. Um and crawls versus slabs, I, I haven't really found the difference between those two. Okay. As we look at location, is there a difference between a corner lot versus an interior lot? Sometimes, sometimes not. Sometimes people like to have a corner because they don't like people on either side of them. But then you right. could have two streets on either side of you. Right. So you could, you know, that could be a, a detriment. It, it again is just really hard to say. If you, like, if you're on an interior of a development, um, say it's not a through development, maybe a corner property could be more valuable than an interior. If you're here in Princeton, you have a corner property on two moderately traffic roads, that could be less desirable, especially if there are no sidewalks. Right. Right. Now, a lot of people are looking online 
at Zestimates from Zillow, and they're looking at estimates of value on Redfin, and and they're using those as if they were gospel. What is your recommendation regarding those estimates and how they are arrived at by these companies? Well, first of all, I think you could probably speak more to that than I could. <laughs> well, I, 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 I always tell people that they're interesting. Mm-hmm. They're interesting, but they are formed through algorithms that do not take into account a number of factors. And, and so they're, they really should just be just an interesting point of fact and mm-hmm. that there are other things that are more important, that other data that's more important to really consider. And those are the, the recent sales, the recent pendings, mm-hmm. what else is on the market, how quickly, as you said, days on the market, how quickly things are, are flying off the market. And if you're using those to, as a buyer, to gauge an offer, it could be a very faulty piece of data. I, I totally agree. And some of those algorithms do not take into account the municipality. Some will just yep. take a look at the zip code. So if you have oh, 540 Princeton, you're talking about three counties. Yep. It doesn't take into all those things that we just spoke about, the nuances of the properties, corner lot, interior lot, um, you know, overall condition. Um Sometimes the bathroom count includes basement bathrooms, which basement bathrooms generally don't have as much market value as ones that are above grade. So it, it people, you're right. People can use it as a guideline, but I would definitely not buy or sell a property based on that information. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't either. Um, when... When you're dealing with the older homes and antique homes and their tax-assessed value, which is, well, you are a woman in demand. Sorry. Um, That's okay. Um, And you're dealing with their tax-assessed value. The tax-assessed value can often be much lower than the market value due to the age of the property. when doing an appraisal, do you are you are do you take into account that if that the sale price in the contract that you're dealing with is much higher than that that tax assessed value, does that become a big red flag for you, or do you just basically look at the other comps and look at their tax assessed value to sale price ratio? I first, this might be a good a good um, opportunity to talk about the assessments. So assessments, a lot of times, are not reflective of how the assessor sees the value currently. You have to throw in a director's ratio into that. Um, the way assessments are done is. We in Princeton had a revaluation in 2010. And in theory, that brought every assessment up to market value. We don't have assessments done every year. What happens is they 
formulate the director's ratio, which looks at, has a two-year look back in the municipality of this um, sale prices compared to the assessments. And then they come up with a director's ratio. And then you, you have to apply that director's ratio to the assessment in order to get what the value is in the, in the eyes of the assessor. So I just wanted to clarify that because that's some, a good clarification. Some municipalities, their directors' ratios are like like fifty six percent. It's just crazy. Right. And the reason why we have to apply that directors' ratio is all municipalities also pay, pay county taxes, so they try, kind of want to have an apples to apples comparison of looking at the um, what the overall value of the properties are in that municipality to pay the county taxes. So having said that, so when I look at a property, I can apply, I apply the director's ratio to it. And, um, it, and a lot of times there is a huge discrepancy. Um, but yeah, I will kind of do a little look at the comps and see how they are just kind of for yucks. That's not the driving factor behind how I derive my, my, um, my opinion of value, though, but good. it is kind of just information that is just kind of good to have, right? Floating around in that mix, mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. puzzle. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned earlier realtors marking up uh, sales and mm-hmm. and notating that there were high tension wires nearby or uh, a cell tower visible potentially. What other things would be considered negative eyesores versus not a negative eyesore? For example, is a gas line running adjacent to a property considered an eyesore uh, as opposed to high tension wires that are visible? Uh, How do those have an impact? I would say high tension wires are much more adverse than gas lines. Um, gas lines, it, they're not unsightly. Um, right. If they're not, if they're running through the property, you would have an easement, which you would have to address because it would affect the utility, your utility of using the property. But if you have an adjacent gas line, generally here, you know, we just, we just see that uh, yellow pole. And right. a lot of times it actually, provides more privacy to the property because, you know, people can't build there. Um, some people don't want right, to be right next to a gas line. Um, I've used an example before at a farm, which has a gas line running through it. And when Toll Brothers was initially marketing those, they charge premiums for people being next to the pipeline. That's uh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yes, they did. Um so because there's more privacy there. And, you know, at the end of the day, not to be too negative. I mean, if the gas line blows, it's not just the house next to it that's going to go. Right. Everybody so, goes. Everybody goes. Right. So right. Um, other than, I mean, you sometimes have cell towers. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times they kind of decorate those like holiday like trees. trees. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I, I would think that the major offender are the um, the utility high tension lines and the utility towers which they just the jury's out on those i know that faja will not accept properties are within fall distance of a tower but 
other than that, well, you know, backing up to some, maybe some commercial uh, influence or maybe backing up to the parking lot where a restaurant has their dumpster, those, those kind of things that might not be obvious. Right. So. Any issue with stucco on inspections? That's where I defer to your, Nick, your, one of your prior guests, right, the right. inspector. Right. I, I don't know the difference between them, but, you know, I concur with him that relocation companies don't like it. Right. No, um, they don't. But I, I defer that that's out of my sandbox. Okay. And, and I I'm didn't not know gonna, if that was part of it or not. No. I, yeah, I just, um, I know that it's stucco and that's, and I don't okay. have any other information on it. <laughs> I do want to segue a little bit into talking about appraisals that that other types of appraisals that you do that are residential appraisals. And often you've in the past, particularly in the past several years prior to COVID, when the the market values were down compared to tax assessed values, particularly in Princeton and Hopewell as well, that people were appealing their tax assessed values. Mm-hmm. And an appraisal was a must for that. Can you, uh, can you talk a little bit about that process of appealing your tax assessed value and, and also how it may have changed now that the market is so hot? Sure. Um, First of all, it's really important for people when they appeal their assessment not to say that I'm appealing my taxes because you're not appealing your taxes. The tax assessor does not set your taxes. Um, and just just for clarification on that. And then there are certain formulas that you have to abide by um, when you're appealing your taxes. You're not in a reval year, which we're not in in Princeton. And I think it's if you're two or three years outside of a reval year, they call it this 15% corridor. And I'm not going to go into all the details on it, but it basically says that if if your assess your equalized assessment is a hundred, um, and you think your your property value is ninety five, then you're going to be with in this fifteen percent corridor, and you're not going to have a case. Right. So you have to show you have to actually show that your house is worth a lot less than at least fifteen percent less. Well. I, it's a little bit more detailed than that because you have to do some kind of calculations. But if anybody, feel free to call me if anybody wants me to look at um, and explain it. I don't want to uh, take the time That's now. That's okay. And I'll encourage, but, I'll yeah. encourage people to do that. Uh, but it's just, um, but basically there is this 15% corridor that comes into play. So you basically have to show your house is worth a lot less than the equalized assessment. The um, and then you for them again to kind of standardize the the values. Everything is as of October first of the year that you want to appeal your taxes, your assessment. Here I go, <laughs> assessment. That's okay. You appeal your assessment, assessment, and you have to you have to do that appeal by April first. April first, and um, you just have to file it by then. You don't have to have the appraisal or your data, or whatever, until seven days before a county hearing. I always encourage people, though to file everything as soon as possible because that can give the assessor some time to take a look at it. Um, 
and have a little bit more time because there are are times where they will come back and offer you a settlement. You don't have to go down to the county. Right. Um, but then all the all the, the values are, are retrospective to October 1st of the prior year. And so, so I do how, those. How, how has that, how has the new hot market changed that? And what do you see going forward in 2021 for appeals in April 1st of 2022? I think it's it's going to be difficult because values yeah. are so high until they reset the equalization ratio, though. Right. And that's going to be interesting to see where that falls. Um, but right now, it's 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 tough. It's it's going to be tough. It's going, it's to, going be to be tough. tough to prove that. Yeah, yeah, especially since we do have a lot of high end properties selling too. Yep. So yep. It, it's tough. But yeah. Anything and uh, tell talk just. Uh, for the last few minutes about other reasons that you do residential appraisals? Sure. So I do them for estate planning. I do them for um, estate tax purposes. So when somebody passes away, they need to have their estate settled. I do them for divorces um, or partner separations, um, for um, tenancy and common situations where they have to reestablish values every year, um, uh, for sometimes a realtor will contact me. They have a really tricky property that they're trying to list and it has some unique um, aspects to it. They want to get an appraiser's opinion on that. So I'll do it for that. Um, and just, yeah, some couple other odd odd situations um but it's definitely more than just mortgages that i would do yes. the appraisers yep. for yeah yeah you do a lot you do a lot i i did want to take an opportunity though if i may to to speak about um quality of construction mm-hmm. um i think that in in princeton which i can speak to because that's where i have most of my experience we have some homes that are going up with really high-end quality of construction. And that is, those properties are going to last a long time without having maintenance on them. And I'm finding that um, buyers are willing to pay more for those properties. Yes. And it's nice because we do have more and more of them on the market and for an appraiser, I'm able to use them as comparables and I'm also able to show that a property that does not have the same quality of construction is selling for X amount less. And so that allows me then to make appropriate adjustments for the differences in the quality of construction, not only for that property, but maybe for a property down the road. Just having that data in my file, I can apply it to other properties so it's it it is really interesting to to see this phenomenon that's going on and we there are so many new products on the market and if you are listing a property and meeting an appraiser at the property with this kind of new material i encourage you to give them any kind of brochure or anything about that material to kind of show the lifespan of that material and how it can withstand um, wear and tear because with people becoming more 
green conscious, I think that there's, it's playing more and more in the market. Right, right, right. And um, I'm assuming quality of materials will also come into play when you're evaluating a house, an older house that's been renovated. Mm -hmm. Being able to determine how well it was renovated or whether it was an inexpensive flip that didn't necessarily utilize quality materials. Yes, yes, w without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. It all, it all comes into play. Yeah. Well, Beth, you have been a gem, and I urge anyone who has an appraisal question to contact Beth. Her contact information will be on the podcast website. Her email, her phone number, it's Beth Ogilvie with Ogilvie Appraisals in Princeton. And she's a wealth of information, and I urge you to contact her for any, any reason having to do with appraisals. So, Beth, thank you so much. Thank you very and, much. And it's been a joy, and I always learn a lot when I talk to you. <laughs> Stay here. Uh, and I hope, hope my listeners have as well. And uh, thanks again. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Princeton Real Estate Podcast with Laura Huntsman. Our podcasts are produced by HG Media and can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.